The year, 1801. The place, North Africa. The newborn United States of America has launched its first overseas war, and the Barbary pirates are about to collide with the Stars and Stripes. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is Episode 7, The Shores of Tripoli, Part 1. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope this finds you well. I also hope you're ready for Part 1, again, of the two-part saga of the Barbary Wars, America's first overseas conflict, which will see the U.S. Navy fight the pirates of North Africa for freedom of the seas, as long as it doesn't cost too much money. And I am here to tell you all about it. couple things I need to say. First, is that this is a two-parter, because there's just too much story to get through in one sitting. Today is part one, and part two will come next week. Second, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean, the content is not. Next, all my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but with all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. What is the price of peace? Can you put a dollar amount beside peace with a foreign enemy? In the 21st century, that seems like a weird thing to ask, doesn't it? America doesn't have to pay anybody for peace. People are lucky not to be at war with us because we're so big and strong and stuff. The idea that we would be paying anyone not to not attack us is almost insulting. But once upon a time, we did. Once upon a time, the United States of America paid for peace. We paid so people wouldn't hurt us. And it wasn't just anyone who decided to do this. Our founding fathers, including George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and John Adams, paid large sums of money to some random North African kingdoms in exchange for treaties of peace and safe passage for American ships. We paid them tribute. Of course, we don't like to think about that reality. It's not a super fun American history fact because, well, it kind of makes us look weak. Well, guess what? In the very early days of American independence, we were weak. There's no getting around that. And the United States paid for peace because we had no choice. We didn't have a military. And even when we did build up a military, even when we did have a choice, we also had to ask ourselves whether the war we would wage cost more than the peace we could buy. Which then raises another question. How much is your pride worth? Can you put a dollar amount beside your national honor? What's that worth to you? Because to be honest, guys, everything is for sale. For the right price. This story today is an interesting one, and not just for the usual reasons. The Barbary Wars, America's war with the North African pirate kingdoms, 
were some of America's first conflicts and basically saw the birth of the U.S. Navy and the United States Marine Corps. These were incredibly important events in our nation's founding era. But they also present an interesting case study in how money has always played a role in warfare. The United States and its Barbary opponents would make strategic and diplomatic decisions that centered largely around the question of money and finance rather than the question of military victory. What's the price of peace? What are you willing to pay? Well, changes all the time. Because peace, like any other commodity, is subject to the whims of the market. Today, we'll be talking about the Barbary Wars, 1801-1805, America's first declared conflict with a foreign power as an independent nation. We're going to talk about the Barbary Pirates in some detail, because I'm James Hauser and I give you both sides of the story. And we'll see why America paid them tribute in the first place. We're going to meet the United States Navy and the early crop of wild-eyed young men that made up its first officer corps. And we're going to travel with them across the Atlantic and see the wars with the Barbary states begin, culminating in one of the most daring raids ever attempted by U.S. forces. Even though we're not going to finish the story until next week, because this is part one, we're going to end with a bang today. Well, not a bang, more like a kaboom. So load your pistols, sharpen your cutlass, and hoist the sails, because we're going on campaign. we going, you ask? Well, let's start with when, because the Barbary Wars truly began only a year after America achieved her independence. As soon as the American Revolution ended, the United States faced two big issues. The first was that under the Articles of Confederation, the new government was extremely weak. America was also capital B broke, with enormous debts and an economy in recession, and this meant that America had basically no military. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that American independence meant that a lot of those old protections for American citizens and interests overseas had suddenly vanished. For the last century and a half, American overseas trade had enjoyed the protection of the British flag. One of the United States' most important economic sectors was in overseas trade and maritime commerce. American shipping crisscrossed the Atlantic to Africa or Europe or Asia, and American merchants thought that after the revolution, they could carry on as if nothing had changed. But now, America was like a teenager that finally leaves home, strikes out on their own, only to realize that dad isn't here to protect them anymore. And dad had kept them safer than they ever realized, because there were sharks in the waters of global trade. Sharks that saw the now unprotected American merchant ships as juicy, juicy targets. These sharks were the Barbary States. The Barbary States were four semi-independent countries that occupied the coast of North Africa, which Europeans called the Barbary Coast, and Arabs called the Maghreb, or the West. These countries were Morocco, Algiers, 
Tunis, and Tripoli. Morocco was independent, but the other three states were technically vassals of the Ottoman Empire. Their rulers usually assumed Turkish military titles like Dey, or Bey, or Pasha, or Pasha, and they paid regular homage to the Ottoman Sultan as a political and religious figure, but he mainly left them to do whatever they wanted. They were virtually independent, and they sustained this independence through piracy. The Barbary states were, in essence, pirate kingdoms. Their economies relied on the seizure of merchant ships, the enslavement of any prisoners on board said ships, and the ransoms they would get for said prisoners. Now, the cities of North Africa had once been major trading hubs, but then the Ottoman Empire moved into the region and that big Mediterranean war began that we talked about last week, of which the Battle of Malta, Siege of Malta, was only one major engagement. But this war killed the formerly prosperous trade networks of North Africa. When the war died down and Ottoman protection receded, the newly independent Barbary states began to rely on piracy as the center of their economic well-being. The Ottoman war in the Mediterranean had been at least partially religious, and the Barbary states continued to use religious language in their justifications of piracy. You know, we're doing this in the name of the Prophet Muhammad, Allah, etc. But as interesting as it might be to see Barbary pirates as religious warriors, they were not at all. The Barbary states were perfectly tolerant of Jewish or Christian communities within their realms, and they were quite happy to buy Muslim slaves from the wastes of North Africa to add to their stock of European Christians. As much as the Barbary states might have preached jihad, that was just a cover story for the very economic basis for their piracy. Barbary piracy was extremely lucrative. Privately owned naval vessels and privateers would prowl the seas, capture European merchantmen, or raid the coasts to take white Europeans as slaves. The Corsairs would take their booty, captured ships, and new slaves back to their home cities to be auctioned off, and the ruler always got a cut of the profits. The Barbary rulers became very rich off this piracy. The high point of Barbary power was probably in the early 1600s, when they were just a straight menace. At one point, Algiers, the biggest of the Barbary ports, was one of the largest cities in the world, mostly because of its enormous slave population. This period is often referred to, usually pejoratively, as the Islamic slave trade or the white slave trade. But don't let that fool you too much. No matter how many tears the Europeans cried about slavery in this period, they were doing their level best to kidnap as many Africans as possible at that exact moment, so let's keep some perspective here, right? But by the time the Barbary states collided with the United States, none of them was really that strong. They weren't able to put more than a dozen ships to sea. This was partly because of European attacks, which you never were able to really hold the Barbary ports, but they were able to do some damage if the pirates got annoying enough. But it was mostly because the European powers found it easier to just bribe the Barbary pirates to leave them alone. Essentially, the Barbary states ran a mobster-like extortion racket, and the Europeans just shrugged and lined up to pay. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, why didn't they fight? Why did the Europeans give in to this extortion? Well, first of all, it was just cheaper. Navies are expensive. Big military missions are expensive. And it was just easier for a European nation to toss the Barbary rulers a bag of money instead of fighting them. It was just less of a headache. 
Second, though, the Barbary states were useful to keep around because they were a useful tool against economic competition. Britain and France and the Dutch wanted to discourage other countries from challenging their monopoly on Mediterranean trade. So they would not only pay the Barbary states off, but the British especially would outright supply and arm them. Then the Barbary rulers would keep smaller countries from interfering with the big dogs. So the big European powers aided and abetted the Barbary states' extortion racket as a way of boosting their own trade networks, almost like a big corporation that's in cahoots with the mobster protection racket. Now, these smaller countries also entered into treaties with the Barbary states, but they had a lot less leverage than countries like Britain or France, so they ended up paying through the nose. And the Barbary states considered things like treaties to be temporary. So say you're Denmark, for instance, and you make a treaty with, say, Tunis, paying 100000 bucks for the release of your prisoners and $20,000 per year thereafter. Well, Tunis might decide that you can afford to pay more, or that you're distracted in a war and they can get more out of you, or that their pirates are bored and bored pirates are dangerous to have around. So Tunis will toss the treaty in the trash and start raiding your ships again until you guys reach a new deal. And every time a new deal was reached, it was a bargaining game with hostages, the relative strength of both sides, the current state of the world, the prices of random goods as factors that changed the deal. And this is why the Barbary Wars were basically, in my opinion, war as haggling. Various things caused the price of peace, the price of safe passage from the Barbary states, to rise and fall, victory, defeat, hostages, food shortages, war weariness, the international situation. Peace, like any commodity, was subject to the whims of the market. How much were you willing to pay? It would be a question the newly independent America would soon have to answer. Because you can imagine just how happy the Barbary rulers were to learn about American independence. What? You're telling me there's a brand new country with lots of merchant ships loaded with booty? But no navy? Huh. Oh, sign me the heck up. It was like Christmas had come early. But not Christmas, because they were Muslim. So I guess it was like Eid al-Fitr had come early. Long story. It began on October 11th, 1784, when Moroccan corsairs captured the American merchantman Betsy. But ironically, this was more of a cry for attention than an act of piracy. The king of Morocco had been a big fan of the American Revolution, and Morocco had even been the first nation to recognize the independence of the United States. But when America stopped taking his calls for some reason, the Moroccan king got frustrated, and he seized the Betsy as a way of getting America's attention. Well, attention was got. After the king of Morocco released the ship and crew of his own accord, America signed a treaty with Morocco in 1786. To this day, the treaty is still valid making Morocco one of America's oldest friends and allies. So Morocco is basically not going to be a problem for the rest of this story. We're good with Morocco. The other Barbary states, though, were a different story. In 1785, the year after Morocco seized the Betsy, Algerian corsairs attacked and captured the merchant ships Maria and Dauphin. Eleven more ships were seized by the Algerians within the summer of 1793, and by the time America finally got into a position to negotiate with the Day of Algiers, 119 American citizens were captives inside his city. 
Not even two years after independence had been achieved, the United States was kind of at war, and its sailors were the hostages of a North African country that most of its citizens could not locate on a map, if they could afford a map, which they probably couldn't. A Corsair attack was a terrifying experience. Latin sails would suddenly appear on the horizon. The lightweight North African ships would draw aside the helpless merchant vessels. The small pirate ships would fire broadsides, and sharpshooters in the riggings and upper decks would unleash a hail of musket fire. If the merchant ship failed to stop and surrender, and this was usually enough to make them do that, the Corsairs would gather a boarding party armed with pikes and swords and pistols. They would taunt and threaten the sailors, banging their swords together, shouting, Yield, dogs, yield! Blaring trumpets, banging drums. And that was usually enough. People surrendered. The captives were kept, brought back to Algiers and kept in miserable conditions, dragging around 40 pounds of chains as they broke and hauled rocks. They were beaten and whipped into working, and tortured if they refused or resisted. America received letters from the prisoners at Algiers describing the heartbreaking, miserable conditions of their captivity. One captive, John Foss, had this to say. They are continually beating the slaves with their sticks and goading them with its end, in which is a small spear, not unlike an ox goad. If any one chance to faint and fall down with fatigue, they generally beat them until they are able to rise again. Now, this is awful, don't get me wrong, but I can't help imagining like Americans back in Virginia or South Carolina talking over dinner how terrible this whole thing was, and their black slaves standing there like, oh gee guys, forced to work for cruel masters, being separated from your family and whipped by overseers and treated like human cattle? I can't imagine how bad that would be. So again, let's keep some perspective, right? American opinions over how to handle the Barbary hostage crisis were sharply divided. John Adams, minister to Great Britain and an eternal pragmatist, thought it would be cheaper and easier in the long run to get with the program and pay tribute to the Barbary states. Everybody else does it, we should probably do that too. But his friend-slash-enemy-slash-frenemy, Thomas Jefferson, minister to France, was a firm believer in the idea of American exceptionalism and believed that America had to prove that it was different from other nations, just inherently special. His notion was that the United States needed to force peace on the Barbary states through aggressive military action. Jefferson also, of course, was super libertarian and didn't believe the United States needed a standing military. Uh, so which is it, Thomas? Gotta be one or the other, man. In 1786, both Jefferson and Adams got a chance to negotiate with Abdrahman, Tripoli's ambassador to Great Britain. The two founding fathers soon realized that the price of peace would be extremely high. Congress had authorized them to borrow up to $80,000 to pay the ransom and negotiate a treaty with the Barbary states, but Abdrahman told them that peace from Tripoli alone would cost $160,000, and that peace was only good for a year. Algiers would eventually demand up to a million dollars for the release of the hostages and a peace treaty. Both men tried to convince the Tripolitan ambassador that America was not at war with the Barbary states. According to Thomas Jefferson, The ambassador answered us that it was founded on the laws of their prophet, that it was written in their Koran, that all nations who should not have acknowledged their authority were sinners, that it was their right and duty to make war upon them wherever they could be found. 
Abdrahman's use of religion to justify his nation's piracy has given some historians the impression that America's conflict with the Barbary states was a religious war, a struggle of Christianity versus Islam. Some have even gone as far as to call the Barbary Wars America's first war on Islamic terror. But that is not remotely true. That is a massive stretch. If I didn't make it clear enough earlier, the Barbary Wars were not a religious struggle, but an economic struggle. War and peace have their prices, and what price were the Americans willing to pay? If you remember the Entebbe episode from a couple of weeks ago, we can draw an analogy between these two situations. Algiers held American captives, and they were making demands for ransom. The United States had three options. Meet Algerian demands and pay tribute to a foreign power, do nothing and leave their people in captivity, or seek a military option. But the United States had no military, so that was off the table. The only way to rescue the American hostages would be to pay whatever the Barbary states asked. Problem is, of course, that was a lot of freaking money the United States did not have. It would take the passage of the U.S. Constitution and most of George Washington's two terms as president for Congress to finally pony up the money to free the hostages. Wait, it gets worse. European countries were just fine with Americans being kidnapped. They were no help at all. British diplomats may or may not have been encouraging the Barbary states to kidnap American sailors and hijack American ships. Not just because Britain was still sore about the revolution, which they were, but because they viewed American merchant vessels and trade ships as competition for their own merchant fleet. Like I mentioned, Britain was just fine with Algiers keeping American insurance rates high and forcing them to pay tribute. Anything that made the cost of American shipping higher made things easier for British traders. The common saying in Britain was that if Algiers did not already exist, they would have had to invent it. So by 1795, the United States finally, after 10 years, negotiated a treaty with Algiers that settled their outstanding issues. At the exorbitant, bank-breaking cost of almost a million dollars, the United States bought the freedom of their surviving citizens, 36 of which had died. They also agreed to pay annual tribute to Algiers and negotiated similar treaties with Tunis and Tripoli in 1797. The treaty with Algeria alone cost America 16% of her national revenue and was the single largest item in the still very small federal budget. Peace in 1795 was freaking expensive. Was this humiliating? Yes. But what choice did they have? Since America had no navy, the Barbary states held all the cards. America's trade and economic prosperity were at their mercy. When it came to peace, the supply was short and the demand was high. The embarrassing reality of their nation's weakness caused a divide within the ranks of the Founding Fathers. Thanks to their experiences before and during the Revolution, many Americans considered a standing military to be a massive economic burden as well as a threat to their liberty. This was an extension of the very strong belief many of the Founders had in a small government, as well as the faith in a militia force to defeat any invader or threat to the United States. But now Americans had been enslaved by a foreign power, precisely because America had no standing military. Militia forces are all well and good when you're fighting the American Indians or small British raiding parties, but to project power across the Atlantic Ocean to fight a pirate kingdom? 
Militia's not going to help you much there. You need dedicated fighting ships, an officer corps, and an administration to pay for it. A political debate ensued over whether or not the United States should establish a navy to secure the freedom of the seas. Ironically, given their views on the best course of action against the Barbary pirates, John Adams's Federalists supported the creation of a navy, while Thomas Jefferson's Republicans opposed it. Only a very slim congressional majority agreed to fund the creation of the United States Navy, and President George Washington signed the bill on what is now the Navy's birthday, March 27, 1794. In the meantime, the Barbary states weren't America's only problem. The French Revolution had occurred not too long ago, and its wars had drawn all of Europe into a great series of conflicts, and soon these conflicts even drew in the United States. From 1798 to 1800, the administration of John Adams fought a brief, undeclared conflict with revolutionary France called the Quasi-War. This turned out to be the first test of the new U.S. Navy. The Quasi-War only really consisted of a handful of ship-versus-ship actions in U.S. coastal waters and throughout the Caribbean, with, you know, varying degrees of success and failure. But it did prove that America's new navy could hold their own. But in the meantime, America still suffered the humiliation of pain for peace, and small insulting incidents made that humiliation worse. In September 1800, the USS George Washington commanded by Captain William Bainbridge, sailed into Algiers with the annual tribute payment for the Algerian day. But then the day demanded Bainbridge make a trip to carry various presents to Constantinople for the Ottoman Sultan, and that since America paid tribute to Algiers, that made them his slaves. When Bainbridge tried to refuse, the day basically told him that he would blow the American ship out of the water unless Bainbridge complied. The final indignity was that the unlucky captain was forced to lower the stars and stripes and sail under the flag of Algeria. Bainbridge wrote bitterly that, I hope I shall never again be sent to Algiers with tribute unless I am authorized to deliver it from the mouth of our cannon. But Bainbridge would soon get his chance. When Thomas Jefferson became president of the United States on March 4th, 1801, he was determined to put an end to America's tribute to the Barbary States. Jefferson was a man of brilliant and creative, naive and contradictory, very hypocritical opinions. He was prepared to use the very navy whose creation he had opposed to accomplish this mission. A crisis had recently arisen with the state of Tripoli, and Jefferson, like many a canny politician now or since, prepared to turn crisis into opportunity. Tripoli is a major North African seaport that is today the capital and largest city of Libya. In this era, though, it was governed by a Turkish dynasty of rulers called Bashals, or Pashas. The Bashal in 1800 was Yusuf Karamanli. Yusuf was an energetic and ambitious ruler who aimed to make Tripoli the most powerful Barbary state, a title currently held by Algiers. Most importantly, though, Yusuf understood that peace had a price. Peace, like any commodity, was subject to the whims of the market. And in 1800, Yusuf Karamanli learned that the United States was paying Algiers more tribute than they were paying him. 
So it's time to go shake down the Americans and get them to fatten his wallet. Just have to point out, it might be easy, given, you know, Yusuf is an Arab opponent of the United States, to be all edgy and modern and portray him as some kind of Islamic terrorist. Lazy or Islamophobic people might do that. But I'm not lazy, and I'm not Islamophobic, so you're in luck. In reality, Yusuf was just a smart shopper who was trying to pull off a price match. You're paying Algiers how much money per year for peace? Well, I'm, out, I'm, I'm trying to be as powerful as Algiers, so why don't you give me just as much? In April 1800, Yusuf informed U.S. Consul James Cathcart that unless he received a payment of $225,000 within six months and $25,000 annually, he would once again send his Corsairs out to attack American shipping. When Yusuf didn't receive a reply to his liking, on February 26, 1801, days before Jefferson took office, Tripoli chopped down the flagpole in front of the U.S. consulate, their way of officially declaring war. Soon the Corsairs were on the prowl for American shipping once again. Now, what Yusuf expected was that the Americans would whine and complain, but eventually they would pay up, just like everyone else did. It would end up costing more money to fight Tripoli than to buy peace. It was only a matter of how much they would end up paying. But Thomas Jefferson still believed that America was special and that freedom of the seas and commerce was worth fighting for, even if it cost America more in the short run than a treaty of tribute. The price of peace had proved too high for America's idealistic, high-minded third president. So in May 1801, Thomas Jefferson made the momentous decision to send the United States Navy to defy the demands of Tripoli's Bashal and bring an end to the Barbary State's protection racket. The Barbary Wars had begun. Real quick, what else is going on in 1801, the year that the Barbary Wars began? When is this exactly? Well, we know that this is not long after the American Revolution. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson is elected president after breaking a tie with Aaron Burr, Alexander Hamilton grieves his beloved son Philip's death in a duel, and Eli Whitney demonstrates the industrial system of interchangeable parts in front of the U.S. Congress. So that's what's up in America. Most of Europe is a little preoccupied at the moment with its own, um, Napoleon Bonaparte-sized issues. So while the Barbary Wars went on and the small U.S. Navy tussled with North African pirates, massive battle fleets commanded by men like Horatio Nelson would be gliding past on their own fun adventures. But they were heroes of another story, and we're not worried too much about them today. Hope that helps. So who were these Americans, sailing off to fight their country's first overseas conflict? In 1801, the United States Navy was still an extremely young institution. There had been a continental navy during the American Revolution, but it had never accomplished much. And by 1785, every single ship had been sold off by Congress to pay off America's war debts. 
Only in 1794, a full decade after the end of the Revolution, did Congress finally vote to create a permanent United States Navy. Money was voted for the construction of the first ships of this young navy, the legendary Six Frigates. Now, it's entirely possible the term frigate means nothing to you. And that's alright, because I'm here for you. What did naval warfare look like in the age of Thomas Jefferson and Horatio Nelson? This is what's commonly referred to as, you know, the age of fighting sail. Wooden ships, swearing sailors, spyglasses, cannons, sails, just to help you get that mental image. Now, there were three main categories of fighting ships in the early 19th century, so I'm going to be using most of these words today just so you know what I'm talking about. There were the battleships, or ships of the line, big honking sledgehammers of warships with two to three decks worth of heavy guns. Admiral Horatio Nelson's flagship HMS Victory, for instance, displaced 3,500 tons and was armed with 104 guns. But this was a particularly large ship of the line. The next step down were frigates, smaller but still well-armed vessels that were usually faster and more maneuverable than the ships of the line. But if you send up a frigate against the HMS Victory, that was like sending an alley cat after a pit bull. So frigates were used more for blockade, pursuit, and scouting, but not as much for direct ship-to-ship -ship confrontation. Then the third category, you had a bunch of smaller types of ships, like brigs, sloops, schooners, and tiny gunboats. But the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy were special. Their design was unusually sturdy, and their armament was unusually strong compared to their European counterparts. Their designer, Philadelphia shipwright Joshua Humphreys, specifically designed them to outfight any European frigate, but outrun any European battleship. These so-called super frigates were finally launched after multiple delays and cost overruns between 1797 and 1800. They were the USS President, Congress, Constellation, Chesapeake, United States, and the Constitution. At the time they were launched, they were probably the best constructed frigates in the world. Ironically for ships built to liberate American sailors from slavery in the Barbary States, much of the wood to build the six frigates was harvested in Georgia by black slaves. A growing assortment of American naval ships, spearheaded by the six super frigates and including the handful of smaller frigates, sloops, and brigs, proved their worth in the quasi-war with France. The Quasi-War also taught the government important lessons in supply, shipbuilding, and administration, and gave the U.S. Navy its first crop of junior officers, and gave those officers valuable experience that they would put to good use against the Barbary pirates. These junior officers were a diverse and colorful cast of characters, shining paragons of the New Republic's sense of pride, ambition, and personal honor. There's this thing, see, called command culture or unit culture, where individuals in an institution tend to adopt similar mindsets and ways of thinking. And this fit the very small, very young U.S. Navy to a T. These young lieutenants and captains were not only brave, daring, ambitious, and headstrong, they were also incredibly touchy, easily offended, fiercely jealous of their position and rank, and they always had personal rivals within the service. This was the age when dueling was a huge thing, and no one loved shooting at each other over random insults more than the Navy's lieutenants and captains. You would not find a bigger bunch of drama queens on the planet than the original generation of American naval officers. 
Example A is today's hero, sort of, Lieutenant Stephen Decatur Jr. Decatur would be all of 20 years old when he sailed off to the Barbary Wars in 1801, an intense and electrifying young man who seemed like he was born to be a romantic warrior. Born in Maryland, raised in Philadelphia, the son of Revolutionary Naval Officer Stephen Decatur Sr., Stephen Decatur Jr. was tall, broad, with an endlessly deep brown eyes and curly black hair. His future wife supposedly fell in love with him just from looking at a miniature portrait. He was apparently so freaking hot that just walking into rooms dressed in his officer's uniform caused ladies to pass out from the hotness. Seriously, that's one story I read. Even the guys thought he was hot. One of his fellow officers said, In Decatur, I was struck with a peculiarity of manner and appearance, calculated to rivet the eye and engross the attention. I had often pictured to myself the form and look of a hero, such as Homer had delineated. Here, I saw it embodied. Oh, and I should mention, dude loved to duel. He was making and accepting challenges to duel all the time, and he was an expert shot with his pistol. If the United States Navy was full of drama queens, Stephen Decatur was a drama goddess. And what's that thing I harp on all the time? Culture affects the way people fight their wars. Many of the impulsive actions, feats of daring, and bold strokes that the young officers of the U.S. Navy undertook in the Barbary Wars were products of an institutional environment where everyone knew everyone else, where competition was at a premium in a small and new service, where masculine honor was everything, and where the cult of romantic heroism was all the rage in the literature and song of the time. The Barbary Wars would be a conflict between a young navy with a bunch of 20-something officers who had jumbo-sized chips on their shoulders versus the pragmatic, unscrupulous, deal-making pirates of the North African coast. The young and the restless versus the pirates of the Mediterranean. When Thomas Jefferson decided to send a naval squadron to the Barbary Coast in May 1801, Americans were in an uproar over Tripoli's demands for increased tribute. After all, they were still paying a crap ton of money to Algiers and Tunis, and this was just the last straw. Now, keep in mind, Thomas Jefferson had no power to declare a war without congressional approval. He had always been an opponent of too much federal and presidential power. But like politicians since the very founding of America, Jefferson was all about reducing the power of the president until he was president. He decided that since Tripoli was at war with the United States, this gave the president the power to defend American interests and undertake necessary military action, with or without congressional approval. By doing this, he set an important precedent for presidential war powers in the future. You know, that the president can order military action and justify it later. Wow, gee, Mr. Jefferson, I'm sure no future American president will ever abuse that power. That would be silly. The big question, of course, was how much all this was going to cost. The expedition cost $500,000 to outfit and supply which was twice what the Bashaw of Tripoli demanded from the United States. Now, it would technically be more economical and more pragmatic to just pay what Yusuf Karamanli was asking. But Jefferson was trying to prove a point, and he and his cabinet hoped that by confronting Barbary piracy now, it would actually save American dollars in the future. 
but there was always this question of cost and money to consider throughout the Barbary Wars. When does the war get too expensive, even too expensive to justify funding the fleet, when it would be cheaper to just pay off the pirates? How much is your national honor worth to you? This delicate balance between the cost of the fleet versus the cost of potential tribute would be hotly debated in Congress and the cabinet for the next several years. Remember, peace, like any other commodity, is subject to the whims of the market. So obviously, it was a good idea for any American commander to go in fighting, to finish the war as quickly and cheaply as possible. But unfortunately, the guide that Jefferson chose to lead America's first overseas naval venture was not much of a fighter. Commodore Richard Dale had been a courageous young officer during the American Revolution when he fought under the great John Paul Jones, but he had grown more cautious and more careful with age. It's easy to be aggressive when your life is the only life you're risking, but not so easy when it's the lives of your men. Dale led his small squadron out from Chesapeake Bay on June 2nd, 1801, the first American naval squadron to cross the Atlantic. Dale's flagship was the super frigate USS President with 44 guns, and it was accompanied by three other smaller warships, the 36-gun frigate USS Philadelphia under Captain Samuel Barron, the 32-gun frigate USS Essex under Captain William Bainbridge, and the small 12-gun schooner USS Enterprise under Lieutenant Andrew Sterrett. The bright-eyed young Lieutenant Stephen Decatur Jr. sailed as Bainbridge's XO on the Essex. All of these names will come back this week or next week, but don't worry, you'll need to take notes. This won't be on the test. There is no test. This is a podcast. They sailed with around a thousand men, including about 180 United States Marines, which in 1801 was half of the Marine Corps. It wasn't big. The Marines and sailors did not get along and were constantly bickering and brawling with each other. Some things never change. Commodore Dale's squadron arrived off Tripoli in July of 1801, but the Bajaw still refused to negotiate. Yusuf wasn't just defiant because he wanted more money. He was also defiant because he had issued a challenge to the United States. The United States had sent a naval squadron, and to back down without getting something out of it would place his regime in jeopardy. He couldn't afford to look weak, and neither could the Americans, because that might change the price of peace. Now, Dale confronted a difficult military problem when he arrived off the coast of sunny North Africa. Tripoli was a city of 30,000 people, a complex of white-walled houses and narrow streets, and it was heavily defended with big guns and fortresses. The Tripolitan Navy was safely anchored inside the harbor, covered by the heavy cannon of the city's walls. The Americans couldn't just roll up into Tripoli and start blasting, not without risking damage and destruction to their own small, limited number of vessels. A daring commander might launch an assault, but Richard Dale was just not a daring commander. So what he decided to do instead, and what most American commanders would do for the next four years, was impose a blockade. The four ships of the American squadron rotated in shifts off the coast of Tripoli, prowling the waters, preventing enemy ships from entering or leaving the port. Dale hoped that this economic warfare would choke off Tripoli's economy and force the Bashal to negotiate, or at least prevent Tripolitan ships from escaping to raid American shipping. Maybe hitting Yusuf in his wallet would lower the price of peace. 
When they weren't on active patrol off the coast of Tripoli, Dale's ships bounced around Mediterranean ports to resupply and refit, or they escorted American merchant ships across the dangerous sea. But the blockade was just not very effective. All the American ships were deep water sailing vessels. The American ships could not get too close to shore, or they might run aground and be stranded. Hint, hint. That might be important later. The light and shallow bottom Tripolitan ships, on the other hand, could skirt the shoreline and slip past the American blockading squadron whenever they wanted, and it was inherently risky for the deep draft American ships to follow. Hint, hint. But all those young naval officers were chomping at the bit to go looking for a fight, and someone finally managed to find one. Commodore Dale had sent the 12-gun sloop USS Enterprise to pick up fresh water from the British-ruled island of Malta. I told you guys we'd be back to Malta this week. The Enterprise was commanded by Lieutenant Andrew Sterrett, 22 years old, a tough, aggressive officer and a rigid disciplinarian. During the quasi-war with France, Sterrett had allegedly run an American sailor through with his sword when the man tried to desert his station. Whether this was true or not, and Sterrett said it was, said a lot about him. If anyone in the U.S. Navy is going to pick a fight with a bigger dude, it was Andrew Sterrett. On his way back from Malta, on August 1st, 1801, Sterrett caught sight of the 14-gun enemy ship Tripoli with the crew of 80. Sterrett, being sneaky, had the Enterprise hoist a British flag as she approached the Tripoli. When Enterprise drew aboard and hailed the enemy ship, the Barbary captain, thinking they were British, freely told Sterrett, yeah, yeah, I'm totally hunting down American merchant ships, isn't this fun? And that was all Sterrett needed to hear. The Union Jack went down, the Stars and Stripes went up, and Marines on board the Enterprise fired a musket volley that raked the deck of the Tripoli. The surprise Corsairs let off a weak broadside, but they had been caught off guard by the sudden assault. Technically, the Tripoli should have outmatched the Enterprise. But Sterrett had trained his gunners well, and their broadsides smashed into the Corsair from every angle. Twice the enemy vessel tried to close and board the American ship, and twice the Enterprise's marines blasted away at them with musket fire. The Arab pirates, though, had their own tricks up their sleeves. When the Tripoli faked her surrender twice, only to open fire again when the Enterprise approached to accept that surrender, Sterrett ran all out of mercy. Smoke and lead filled the air of that Mediterranean summer, until the Tripolitan decks were covered with blood, the ship's captain and XO among the dead. Sterrett's crewmen continued to blast the Tripoli to pieces, aiming their guns to smash the ship at the waterline. Finally, when they could take no more, the Tripoli surrendered for real. She had lost 30 dead and 30 wounded out of a crew of 80, with her sails and rigging cut to pieces by the American fire. The first ship-to-ship -ship combat of the Barbary Wars was a resounding American victory. The news of Sterrett's triumph was a huge morale boost for the United States. Congress issued a resolution praising Sterrett, issued him and his crew a pay bonus, and bought him a shiny new sword. But the optimism that Sterrett's victory had given the United States was fleeting, and the excitement of the first battle soon faded away. Commodore Dale's ineffective blockade was a waste of time and money, and several Corsairs managed to slip past the American ships and capture American merchant ships. Other ships managed to sneak food into the city. Dale 
frustrated by his limited resources and unable to force the Bashal to come to terms, ran out of patience. In April 1802, he returned to Virginia on board the President, leaving the other ships of his squadron to maintain the blockade. When he demanded to be given the rank of Admiral, for basically doing nothing, and was turned down, he resigned his commission. So that's one commander who didn't work out. Like I said, drama queens, man. Jefferson was frustrated with the outcome of the war so far. After a year, nothing had really happened besides one ship-to-ship battle. He was now forced to seek congressional approval for further military action against Tripoli. It wasn't easy. The costs were starting to pile up, and without results, the war was becoming harder to justify. But on February 6th, 1802, Congress authorized Jefferson to use any means necessary to protect America's commerce. Another squadron was destined for the Mediterranean. Unfortunately, it would be led by Commodore Richard Morris, a political appointee who turned out to be an even worse choice than Dale. Morris sailed from Virginia with five frigates as opposed to Dale's three, the biggest commitment America had made to the war so far. For some reason, he also brought his wife and young son, which, I get it dude, you love your family, but you probably shouldn't bring them on deployment. Morris wasted most of 1802 puttering around the Mediterranean seaports, partying with British officers, and hanging out with his family. At one point, he even got his stupid butt kidnapped by the Bay of Tunis before he had to negotiate his ransom. While Morris was on his incompetent pleasure cruise, this left plenty of time for young officers to get in trouble, start fights, and get into duels. While the USS New York was putting in at Malta, midshipman Joseph Bainbridge, Captain William Bainbridge's younger brother, got into a heated argument with Mal the secretary of Malta's British governor. After he knocked him out with a punch, the secretary challenged young Joseph to a duel, and the challenge was accepted because that's the only way we have to settle arguments in 1802. Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, expert duelist, volunteered as Bainbridge's second. After Bainbridge killed the British secretary on the second exchange of shots, because the first, I guess, wasn't enough, both young American officers were sent home by their commanders to placate the furious British governor. Like I said, Drama queens, man. Finally, more than a year after leaving the United States, Morris's squadron arrived off the coast of Tripoli. The few ships that Dale had left behind had been keeping up the blockade for the last year or so, waiting to be relieved, so you can imagine how ticked they were when Morris finally showed up. The crazy thing was that they had actually started to have a bit of an impact. Tripoli was starting to run short of food and on morale, and the constant U.S. presence outside the city had gotten Bashal Yusuf to start rethinking his options. He was reported to be open to negotiation after two years of conflict. The price of peace had started to drop. But Richard Morris did not understand the art of the deal. When he rode into Tripoli on June 7, 1803, to negotiate with Yusuf, the Commodore offered $5,000 for each new American ambassador and $10,000 for the next five years of peace much lower than the original offer. But Morris had badly misunderstood the situation. He had offered too much. Even though his deal was much lower than the previous tributes that America had paid, and much lower than what Yusuf asked for at the beginning of the war, it was a much better deal than Yusuf expected given his city's desperate condition. And this got Yusuf thinking. 
Maybe the Americans weren't doing so hot either. Maybe I'm winning this thing. Maybe they were desperate for peace. Yusuf now demanded an immediate bonus of $200,000 in cash, in addition to a yearly subsidy of $200,000 more. This was unacceptable. It was more than Tripoli had asked for before the war had begun. The price of peace had gone back up, and it would continue to go back up as long as the Americans couldn't force a decision against Tripoli. Other Barbary nations were taking notes and deciding that, you know, maybe risking war with the United States isn't a big risk at all if all you're going to get from it is a weak blockade. News of Morris's pleasure cruise and his bungling of negotiations with Yusuf caused a firestorm back in the United States. Congressional hearings were called, a naval board of inquiry brought charges of incompetence. On September 11th, 1803, Morris was dismissed of his command, and when he came home, Jefferson stripped him of his commission. In the meantime, the British had had an opportunity to show the United States how it was done. Sit back, young man. Let Dad teach you how to handle pirates. After Algerian Corsairs attacked a British frigate near Malta, Admiral Horatio Nelson, commander of the Mediterranean fleet, rolled into the harbor of Algiers with seven frigates. Without so much as a, hey, what's up, Nelson's ships unleashed a massive barrage into the city, setting much of Algiers ablaze until the terrified Day offered to negotiate. Nelson ordered the Day to release all British prisoners, fork over some money, and never even look at a British ship again, and then he left. It took a couple of hours. Take notes, kids. After two years of war, Jefferson had been continually frustrated by the lack of aggressive spirit in his senior commanders. But he was about to get third time lucky with his next appointment. On May 14, 1803, Edward Preble was awarded the rank of Commodore in the U.S. Navy in command of the 3rd Squadron to set sail for the Barbary Coast. Born in Falmouth in what is now Maine, Preble had been at fighting at sea since the Revolution. But despite his experience, Preble wasn't easy to get along with. The 43-year-old redhead had a short temper and a sharp tongue. Thin, balding, and abrasive, he quickly became unpopular. Preble's flagship would be the now-legendary super-frigate USS Constitution with 44 guns, accompanied by five other ships, including the smaller frigate USS Philadelphia under Captain William Bainbridge and the USS Enterprise under Lieutenant Stephen Decatur. Preble described most of his officers as nothing but a pack of boys, the hot-headed young officers that I told you all about. But these boys would transform into America's first pack of naval heroes in the Barbary Wars and the War of 1812, Names like Isaac Hull, David Porter, Thomas McDonough, James Lawrence, and most of all, Stephen Decatur Jr. They were brave, reckless, energetic, daring, and too young to know any better. Unsurprisingly, most of them hated Preble at first. Preble was tyrannical, stern, domineering, especially hard on his younger officers. But on their way to the Barbary Coast, something happened that changed their minds. Late one night, the USS Constitution came across an unknown ship. When Preble hailed the vessel, they refused to answer. When Preble threatened to fire unless the hidden ship answered, a voice responded that they were the HMS Donegal, a British ship of the line, a battleship, with 84 guns, which was twice the weight of metal that the Constitution could throw. 
Then they demanded that Preble send over a boat to meet them. Preble said, This is the United States ship Constitution, 44 guns. Edward Preble, an American Commodore, who will be damned before he sends his boat on board of any vessel. Intimidated by this show, the British vessel sent over a ship of her own, who explained that they were actually the smaller HMS Maidstone. Their captain had been caught embarrassed and napping, and he tried to bluff his way out of a dangerous situation. All Preble's younger officers were impressed with the balls of this guy, who had been prepared to throw down with a vessel twice his size. They suddenly saw their commander in a new light, not as a bad boss, but as a tough, hard-fighting officer who just expected a lot out of them. These crazy young men who gained their first knowledge of command under the tough, stern, but able hand of Edward Preble would be forever remembered as Preble's boys. President Jefferson had finally found the commander who could lead America to victory over Tripoli. He would need all the help he could get because things were only about to get worse for the United States in its first overseas war. The price of peace was about to get much, much higher. Commodore Edward Preble's U.S. Naval Squadron finally arrived off the coast of Tripoli in September of 1803. Preble sent the frigate Philadelphia under Captain William Bainbridge to blockade the port. While he took the Constitution and the rest of the fleet to visit other Barbary ports and practice their gunnery. Preble's aggression and fighting spirit had been infectious, and the rest of the American squadron were spoiling for a fight. No one was more eager than Captain William Bainbridge. His ship, the 36-gun Philadelphia, was a slightly smaller vessel than the big super frigates, but she was still one of America's proudest warships, paid for by a fundraising drive from among the citizens of her namesake city, and had won laurels under the command of Stephen Decatur Sr. by capturing five armed enemy ships during the Quasi-War. Bainbridge, on the other hand, had been one of the unluckiest officers in the American Navy. Despite his enormous talent and leadership ability, he had found himself in two impossible situations in his military career. First in the Quasi-War in 1798, he had been outgunned and forced to surrender by two French frigates. Then in 1800, the day of Algiers had forced him to carry treasure to Constantinople. So Bainbridge was determined to regain his dignity and honor and revive his career. Unfortunately for him and his crew, his luck was about to hit rock bottom. Literally. On October 31st, 1803, the Philadelphia sighted a Barbary ship trying to run the blockade. Bainbridge immediately gave chase, and even when the ship was nearly within Tripoli's harbor, the Americans were hot on their tail. But Bainbridge's hot pursuit came to a screeching halt. As they raced after the enemy ship, to their sudden horror, the crew of the Philadelphia heard a loud grinding and felt their frigate suddenly lurch beneath them. The frigate was stuck on a reef that was somehow absent from Bainbridge's charts. They had run aground. Remember how I said this was a risk in Tripoli's harbor? 
everyone realized that their ship was in enormous danger. They were stuck less than five miles east of Tripoli, and soon enemy gunboats and vessels were rowing out to swarm the crippled frigate. Bainbridge's crew threw water kegs, anchors, even their cannons off the ship in a desperate attempt to lighten it so they could back off the reef. They tried to turn their sails to catch the wind, hoping that could free them, but the wind just pushed them further onto the reef and even began to tip the vessel over. They even tried to rock the ship by shifting the load back and forth to force their ship off the reef, but to no avail. The Tripolitan gunboats fired at the stuck ship and moved in closer, like wolves circling a wounded bear. Soon Bainbridge and the Philadelphia's officers had no choice. At 4 p.m., he decided to surrender, but not before drilling holes into the bottom of his ship to keep her from falling into the hands of the pirates. 307 officers and men of the U.S. Navy were now prisoners of the Bashal of Tripoli. While Yusuf put the seamen of the Philadelphia at hard labor as slaves and confined Bainbridge and his embarrassed officers to quarters in the palace, he didn't harm them, at least not physically. There was no torture or anything. But soon the officers were hurting in a much different way. From their house arrest in Yusuf's palace, they watched with horror as Tripolitan sailors and carpenters managed to plug the holes, pull the Philadelphia off the reef, and tow it back into port. The triumphant Yusuf not only had over 300 American servicemen in his prisons, he now had an American warship, paid for by subscriptions from the citizens of Philadelphia, to display as a trophy of war and possibly use against her former masters. Now it was Yusuf who was in a position to make demands. He sent a message to Preble, informing him that the price of peace had gone up. He now demanded $450,000, a thousand each for the 307 American servicemen he now held in captivity, a hundred thousand for peace, and 43,000 as a personal bribe. And that was before the subject of annual tribute was to be discussed. The market had spoken. Once again, the Barbary pirates held all the cards. Edward Preble was predictably furious over the loss of the USS Philadelphia, and not just because it left his squadron one powerful warship short. It was the worst humiliation America had suffered so far, worse even than paying tribute to the Barbary states. Not just American citizens, but now officers and men of the US Navy were hostages to a pirate king, and he had an American warship. This indignity could not be borne, Something would have to be done to recover America's honor and reputation. After all, that honor and reputation had been why Jefferson risked this whole war to begin with. What was America's honor worth? The President and Congress had decided it was worth a war not to have to pay tribute to the Bashal of Tripoli. But where was that honor now? I mentioned earlier how honor and pride were such an important, difficult subject for Americans in this time period the officers of the U.S. Navy had an axe to grind. They had something to prove. And this wasn't just a function of American masculine and public culture at the time, though it was, and constant dueling was a big part of that masculine culture. It was the simple fact that America was not respected by the other nations. Look at how scornfully the Barbary states treated America. Look how the British ship that Preble encountered disrespected his ship in that midnight encounter. 
Look how the British had encouraged and abetted the Barbary extortion in the United States. Look how the Algerian Day had forced Bainbridge to be his messenger boy. America was not respected because she had not yet proven herself worthy of the respect powerful nations earned through centuries of warfare and diplomacy. To put it bluntly, the United States of America was the new kid at school, and the young officers of the U.S. Navy felt this inferiority complex to their core. This, I think, was the origin of the most famous American exploit of the Barbary War. Tripoli could not be allowed to keep the Philadelphia. Not only was it a continual reminder of American humiliation, it would be downright dangerous for the Bashal to have such a powerful ship. It would be months before the Barbary pirates could repair her and put her to sea. But when she was launched again, the Philadelphia would be more dangerous than any other ship America had besides the six super frigates. You might think, why not steal her back? Well, for the same reason that it was unwise to roll up and blast away at Tripoli from short range. The Philadelphia was covered by Tripoli's fortress batteries, and currently stripped of her sails and masts. If the Americans stole her back, they wouldn't make it three feet without being blown out of the water. So what could be done? No one's quite sure who had the idea first. Bashal Yusuf allowed Bainbridge to write letters to Preble, informing him of the condition of his men, and Bainbridge wrote secret messages to Preble in invisible ink, suggesting this idea. So Bainbridge had the documents on his side. Preble would always claim that the idea was his, and he did formulate the plan. But so would young Lieutenant Stephen Decatur Jr. And to be honest, it sounds like something Stephen Decatur would think of. It's entirely possible that all three men thought of the plan at the same time. Wait, what was this idea, though? What was this daring plan that everyone wanted to take credit for after the fact? The idea was quite simple. It probably wasn't possible to rescue the Philadelphia, but it would be possible to destroy her. If America couldn't have her, no one could. Talk about your abusive relationships, right? But how to destroy the captured ship? Again, Preble couldn't just roll up and start blasting, not without exposing his own ships to danger and fire. And in the shallows of Tripoli Harbor, there was the chance that they could run aground too. Imagine how embarrassing that would be. Preble had recently requested and been promised a small fleet of shallow draft gunboats, but they were months away from arriving, and time was of the essence. Bainbridge, in his secret messages, reported the Philadelphia's position to Preble. In December 1803, he proposed by letter that a disguised ship sneak up next to the Philadelphia under cover of night, destroy her, and make their escape. Preble agreed with this plan, and the now 25-year-old Lieutenant Stephen Decatur suggested using his own ship, the Enterprise, for the mission. But Preble wasn't about to risk another of his warships on this perilous raid. When Preble and Decatur went on a recon mission of Tripoli Harbor, they were confirmed in their decision not to try to blast their way in. Yusuf Karamanli's defenses sported 115 operational guns, and all of them were within easy range of the Philadelphia. This reinforced the need for stealth, surprise, and the cover of darkness for the sabotage mission. On their way back, the Americans came across and captured a Tunisian ship called the Mastico. A captured ship? Well, 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 the final piece of the plan had just fallen into place. From their base in Syracuse, the main seaport of Sicily, Preble and Decatur finalized the plan. 
It would be a difficult, dangerous mission with a high chance of failure. So Preble didn't feel comfortable ordering anyone to undertake the raid. They would take volunteers only. Decatur, of course, volunteered to lead it. So if he isn't making women faint from how hot he is or challenging people to duels, he's leading midnight commando raids. I'll, I'll be honest, if this guy was alive today, he would either be in jail or he'd have his own TV show. Dueling Round the World with Steve Decatur, now on Netflix. Preble's secret expedition, as he called it, consisted of the captured Mastico, which Decatur renamed the Intrepid, and the 16-gun brig Siren, commanded by Decatur's friend, Lieutenant Charles Stewart. The Siren would escort the Intrepid, which would be unarmed, into the mouth of Tripoli Harbor. When Decatur asked for volunteers from the Enterprise for a dangerous mission, the entire crew stepped forward. It probably would have taken more guts not to volunteer. Stewart's entire crew volunteered as well. It was a stunning display of how much charisma and courage these young, reckless officers had that they were able to inspire their crews to such an extent. Decatur's commando team set sail on February 3rd, 1804, with 71 men aboard the Intrepid, 12 officers, 50 sailors, and 8 U.S. Marines. The odd man out was the last critical component of the mission, a Sicilian navigator named Salvador Catalano, who not only knew Tripoli's harbor like the back of his hand, but spoke multiple languages, including the North African Arabic dialects. Five days later, on February 8th, the Siren and the Intrepid reached the mouth of Tripoli Harbor. But bad weather forced them to postpone the mission, and the two ships endured storms and heavy gales before it was finally safe to conduct the raid to destroy the Philadelphia. Finally, on February 16th, 1804, the raid began. The coast of North Africa seemed like a long shadow to the south as the Intrepid made its slow way into Tripoli Harbor, flying a British flag. On the deck stood a handful of men, including the young Stephen Decatur, looking every inch the Homeric hero that his fellow officers and men believed him to be. All of the men on deck were disguised in Maltese clothing, and as the sun set and the crescent moon rose, they glided slowly into range of the guns of Tripoli. As Intrepid made its slow way towards the stranded Philadelphia, every man on board waited with their breath in their throats, listening for what they felt had to be the inevitable cry of alarm. But none came. As the ship came within earshot, though, the crew heard a voice calling out from the Philadelphia to challenge their approach. This was what Decatur had brought Catalano for. The Sicilian yelled back in the lingua franca of the Barbary states, saying they were a traitor who had been caught in the storm and asking permission to dock alongside the Philadelphia. As the intrepid drew closer, Catalano continued to converse with the Tripolitan sentry, talking about the terrible weather. Yeah, this sucks, just ignore the fact that we're moving closer and closer to you. Below the intrepid's decks, Decatur's volunteers gripped their swords and knives. No firearms were to be used in this attack, only cold steel to keep the noise to a minimum and retain the element of surprise. As Catalano talked, the Intrepid drew up only 20 feet from the captured American frigate. The disguised Americans tied the two ships together with the grudging permission of the Arabs, then threw their bodies into the ropes to haul the vessels side by side. It was 9.30 p.m., 
and as the raider's vessel drew closer and closer, there was a sudden shout, Americans! The gun ports of the Philadelphia swung open, and the American commandos could hear the Tripolitans readying their cannon to fire. Catalano panicked. He yelled at Decatur they should board now, before the Tripolitan gunners fired into the Intrepid and blew them all away. But Decatur boomed back. No order to be obeyed but that of the commanding officer. He waited until the very last minute, when the Intrepid bumped up against the hull of the Philadelphia. Then he yelled, Board! The commando team burst out from below the decks of the Intrepid, Decatur in the lead, his sword raised. One sailor remembered the moment. The effect was truly electric. Not a man had been seen or heard to breathe the moment before. At the very next, the boarders hung on the ship's side like cluster bees, and in another instant, every man was on board the frigate. Would have made a great painting or whatever, but Decatur slipped while leaping over to the Philadelphia, and midshipman Charles Morris was the first to set foot on the captured ship. Decatur was soon close behind him, and the Americans swarmed aboard Philadelphia without firing a shot. Knives, pikes, swords, and cutlasses were the order of the day. Cold steel rang on cold steel in the quiet North African night. Only the screams of the surprised and confused Tripolitan sailors echoed above the grinding clash. Within ten minutes, Decatur's commandos had overwhelmed the enemy crew. The Philadelphia was secure. Decatur had planned extensively for what came next. He fired a rocket into the sky, which signaled to Charles Stewart's siren waiting offshore that they had successfully boarded. This also signaled to the Tripolitan Fortress gunners that they were under attack, but their cannon fire was ineffective, hesitant, and confused in the darkness. None of the shots even came close to the two ships. The rest of Decatur's plan went like clockwork. He had designated multiple teams for different points of the ship, and they carried combustibles to plant all over the captured vessel. Lieutenant James Lawrence and Midshipman Thomas McDonough, both future War of 1812 naval heroes, led a team and set fire to the storerooms and berth decks, while Midshipman Morris lit up the cockpit. Teams spread out across the ship, lighting everything they could get to on fire. The Philadelphia was ablaze in minutes, the flames catching and spreading so fast they put many of the American sailors in danger. The sabotage teams raced out from below the decks of the frigate as the inferno chased them out and exploded from underneath the planks, as the rigging blazed orange and red from the deliberate arson of the American vessel, which had been paid for by the citizens of Liberty City and displayed as a war prize by the Bashal of Tripoli. Stephen Decatur was the very last man to leave. He took one last look at the old girl his father had commanded, probably sorry to see her go like this, then leapt away, grabbing at the Intrepid's rigging at the last second as they pulled away from the blazing ship. With shots whistling around the Intrepid, at least one passing through her sails, two American rowboats began to tow the ship out of the port. As they escaped, Decatur's commando team watched the Philadelphia writhe in flame. One sailor described the scene. The flames in the interior illuminated her ports and, ascending her rigging and masts, formed columns of fire, whilst the occasional discharge of the guns gave an idea of some directing spirit within her. The walls of the city and its batteries, and the masts and rigging of cruisers at anchor, were brilliantly illuminated and animated by the discharge of artillery, and formed worthy adjuncts and an appropriate background to the picture.
Why did everyone write letters like they were some kind of novelist back then? Suddenly, the flames touched off the loaded cannons. In one final act of revenge, the Philadelphia's last broadside went directly into the packed streets of Tripoli. As her cables finally burned away, and discharging her guns randomly into the panicking vessels in Tripoli Harbor, the mortally wounded vessel floated beneath the walls of Yusuf Karamanli's castle. At midnight, long after the Americans had made their escape, the Philadelphia exploded and debris rained across the houses and palaces of Tripoli. Five miles away on the siren, Lieutenant Charles Stewart watched the Philadelphia burn. Once he had rendezvoused with the Intrepid at 1 a.m., both ships made like bandits and got the heck out of Dodge. Even by the morning light of February 17, 1804, they could still see the light of the burning wreck of the Philadelphia. The two ships returned to Syracuse on February 19th. The entire American squadron cheered their return, and even the famously harsh Edward Preble was full of praise for the reckless, daring act of his young officers. But this was nothing compared to the reaction worldwide. The tale of Decatur's daring raid rippled across Europe and America. Public opinion in the United States was ecstatic, with expressions of patriotism and national pride flooding the press. Stephen Decatur Jr. became the first bona fide war hero of the very young nation, being instantly promoted to captain, which is, at 25 years old to this day, the youngest man to reach that rank in the history of the U.S. Navy. Decatur's launch to superstardom had begun, and he would become one of the United States' most famous and beloved servicemen, the toast of Washington society and the heartthrob of girls from Maine to New Orleans. Didn't hurt that he was apparently super hot, and get this, his adventures had only begun. But that said, it's a shame so few people remember Stephen Decatur today. If they do remember him, it's allegedly for coining the phrase, my country right or wrong. Of course, much like beam me up Scotty, not something he ever actually said. His actual quote was a toast that goes something like this. Our country, in her intercourse with foreign nations, may she always be in the right but right or wrong, our country. But seriously, the guy needs a movie, or two, or something. And not just for the Philadelphia. His, like I said, his adventures have only begun, and we'll get into more of them next week. But the burning of the Philadelphia meant something to more people than Stephen Decatur, and all the women who were suddenly friend-requesting him on Facebook. It is no exaggeration that the raid caused many, many nations to gain a touch of respect for the newborn American Navy and the nation that had launched it. Even other Barbary states like Algiers and Tunis sat up and took notice of this audacious action. It was universally acknowledged that destroying a captured ship in the enemy's harbor without the loss of a single man was one of the most successful military operations of the era. Even Lord Horatio Nelson, who could have given Decatur a run for his money in audacity and boldness and raw sex appeal, called the raid the most bold and daring act of the age. The final man to react to this bold and daring act was Yusuf Karamanli, Bashal of Tripoli. He was furious that his prize had been destroyed under his very nose, and his first reaction was to take his frustration out on the American prisoners. The Tripolitan jailers stormed into the cells of the Philadelphia's captive crewmen, beating them, insulting them, and cutting their rations. 
It didn't help their mood that when the Americans learned why their captors were so angry, they couldn't conceal their joy. This only made the punishment worse. Bainbridge and his officers were moved from house arrest into a dank cell of their own. These prisoners would continue to linger in Tripoli's cells for months, but at least they had the satisfaction of knowing that their ship would no longer serve in the Bashal's fleet. But Yusuf Karamanli now faced a new situation. It, was, it had been his turn to be humiliated and embarrassed by a foreign power. And this was also a sign that this was a different American Navy than the one he had confronted for the last two years. Now the Americans were truly on the offensive, and they would have the guts to back up their threats. Before the burning of the Philadelphia, Yusuf had been demanding over a million dollars as the price of peace. But peace is a commodity. Its price rises and falls. What's the price of peace? That was now a question that Yusuf Karamanli had to ask himself. Edward Preble, for his part, was determined to win his comrades' freedom by force. For years, Americans had been forced to pay whatever the Barbary states had demanded in exchange for the freedom of the seas and the peace of nations. But now the shoe was on the other foot. Preble knew the tide had turned, and now was the time to press the attack. Americans were still hostages in the prisons of Tripoli, and the Bashal remained defiant. But now the United States had a Commodore ready to fight, and the full power of an officer corps filled to the brim with drama queens to make things happen. The Barbary Wars were far from over. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening to me today. I hope that you thought today's story was interesting and awesome. And don't forget to tune in next week for part two. Thank you also for your continued support of this podcast. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of the stuff I've written or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I would love to hear it. Also, do not pack your bags, because next week we're going to keep hanging out off the shores of Tripoli. If you thought this story was good, wait until you see the conclusion. We have uh, more of the Stephen Decatur drama queen adventures. We have a suicide mission with a bomb vessel. We have American commandos raising an A-team in Egypt. We have that iconic moment when United States Marines raise the stars and stripes on the shores of Tripoli. Guys, you don't want to miss it. So see you next week on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 